You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week we're joined by Carrie Woodward, a board certified behavior analyst and the brilliant mind behind Jumpstart the Journey. With over two decades of experience, Carrie's journey into autism began at Pepperdine University in 2002. Igniting a lifelong passion for helping families navigate the complexities of autism spectrum disorders by combining scientific expertise with empathetic communication, Carrie provides parents with practical strategies to empower them during the critical waiting period for professional help. Join us as we explore her journey and the transformative impact of her work. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited as well, and and timeliness is probably uh, the the best way to describe you coming on to this particular show at this particular uh, juncture as far as you know where the industry is and where parents are in their journey. But before we get there, um, I always want to give our audience a chance to know why it is that that you're in the position that you're at, how your passion evolved within the field, especially as it comes to you're helping families. Like you, you've decided that that's your role right now. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a background of how you got to where you are. Um, yes, I actually started out on you know doing direct intervention, doing therapy um, as an undergrad in college, and I fell in love with uh, this idea of helping families. I could see tangible change and improvement in the in the kids that I was working with, and then just seeing how the science was able to be applied and make like a really meaningful impact in these families' lives. And I lived on the treatment side for 22 years. That's where I, you know, I, I was the clinical director of an agency and um, it wasn't until I had my own children and I had two kids in the matter of two years. And I just sort of hit a wall on being able to provide the level of, of treatment and commitment to our clients that I felt like I wanted to. And so I decided to step away from that formal side, knowing that I wanted to find another avenue in this field because this is where my passion was. And in a period where I was sort of playing around with where I was going to be and what I was going to be doing, I had a very good friend that had a child who was delayed in their development. And she came to me because she was like, Carrie, this is your field. Uh, What should I be doing? And I, for the first time, started helping her navigate this end of the journey, right? I'd always been in the, once kids had a diagnosis, once they had funding for treatment and got enrolled into treatment, that's where I first got them. So this was the first time I was sort of helping navigate the other end of like, what do I do when my child is delayed? And I just was floored by how few resources and tangible things there were for parents Mm -hmm. in this stage. And Um, as I was sort of giving her guidance on where to go, um, you know, she was sort of met with the things that I think all parents are at this stage, which is not yet. Uh, Let's wait a little bit longer and see how he goes. And um, I'll refer you at a certain age, like at 18 months, I'll give you a referral at that point, but not before then. And then every sort of stage in the journey was more waiting, more waiting, more waiting. And being a practitioner and knowing how vital the zero to three age range is for like where the brain plasticity is and how much change we can make. I was like, 
this is the area that is so lacking and I have the, and I have the knowledge and the, and the history for it. So I'm going to jump in and, and make something. No, absolutely. And I mean, when you're looking at the barriers that are there, these barriers have been there forever. Yes. Um, historically, I don't know that families knew always what they were missing out on. Um, so it was kind of, you know, they they knew that schools were there. They knew that, you know, there were some supports, but they didn't realize the depth of what the, the, the they were afforded through their health insurance or through the state or yeah. whoever it was that should be resourcing and weren't at the time. Right. How does it, I mean, when you talk to the families who have come through Jumpstart, What's mm -hmm. the typical story that you're hearing from these families? Because it's got to be heart-wrenching yes. to hear, I've yes. been doing this, this, this. All I want to do is help my child. Yes. Uh, every parent, almost every parent that I work with has said that they knew something was wrong. There was something going on with development very young, like less than a year old. And yet nobody would give them what they were supposed to be doing other than saying, we don't do anything until this point. And so they then, they, you know, I think every parent wants to believe that every professional that they're engaging with, every doctor, everybody has their best interests. Um, but I, if, unless you know, you, you don't know what you should be pushing for. And so we have parents who don't know what they should be pushing for. And we're sort of wasting all of this time when we know that we could be doing really amazing work with these kids. Um, and, you know, I think I speak from the perspective of living in uh, the United States where resources are a lot more plentiful. But I really began before Jumpstart the Journey was even created. I was just doing educational resources online on social media. Um, I wanted to be able to share education about behavior analysis and autism to people who didn't have those resources. And so, you know, we're rich with resources in the United States. And even here, parents are still having to wait years before they can actually get their children enrolled into valuable treatment, let alone where we are in around the world. In other areas, I have parents from all over the world who they, they wait five years for a diagnosis. So, at the, I mean, how old is your child at that point to begin even thinking about treatment? And so, you know, obviously, I, I, I want what I do to help parents. And I want to empower parents to take matters into their own hands and stop waiting because there might not be something for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, are are the I guess the the skills that you're developing and the interventions that you're helping for families to put in place in their household? Are you looking at this on the I guess the macro level of how can I make your home a place where I can empower you and empower your child to start the process of creating a, a better environment um, so that when treatment is available, if that's what you're looking for, that you can hit the ground running? Or Absolutely. are you trying to start and almost create the treatment environment from day one? What, what is the philosophy of Jumpstart? Okay, so it's not meant to be intervention. It's not meant to be a replacement for formal therapeutic strategies like ABA or speech, I mean, whatever is being recommended by the diagnostic, whoever is giving the diagnosis is gonna give recommendations for what they think this child needs, right? So this is not meant to be a replacement. It is simply meant to be 
from the moment that you are concerned about your child and you're starting the process of all of the things you have to do before you can get your child enrolled into formal treatment, you can start doing things right now in order to set the stage for optimal learning. And you know, I'll sort of dive into the philosophy. I, I could talk about this forever. But one of the things that we know from infant research is that infants who go on to receive a diagnosis of autism spend significantly less time looking at people as opposed to looking at objects. And this sort of creates this inherent learning problem because childhood learning is done predominantly through observation and watching others and imitating. And so if our autistic babies are not spending enough time watching other people, they're not learning. So the developmental delays sort of compound on themselves. And so one of the core features of the program is teaching parents how to turn everyday interactions and play and engaging in play with their kids and sort of starting to shift the focus and bring value for kids to look at people more often so that learning can begin happening a bit more naturally because they're spending the time watching people, which is where learning is happening. Um, we know that autistic children tend to be less sensitive to social consequences as reinforcement. And this is a bit technical, so I'll break it down, but reinforcement is that consequence that strengthens all of our behavior. All humans are behaving because our behavior is reinforced by something. And for a lot of us, social consequences serve to strengthen and reinforce behavior. As we're having a conversation, if you're nodding your head, that's sort of social reinforcement. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna keep going there. Teachers in classrooms are providing social reinforcement all of the time, thumbs up, way to go, good job. These praise words, all of these things have become conditioned over time by being paired with things that already serve to reinforce us. And so because autistic children are not spending as much time attending to and engaging with social things, these social things acquire a lot less reinforcing properties. So not only are we not watching enough to be available for learning of what's happening there, but then the social consequences that most parents provide thinking like this is going to, you know, I don't, I don't know that any parent is thinking in terms of, oh, I'm going to reinforce this behavior, but it's just what we do naturally with our kids, right? We want to encourage what they're doing. Great job. Keep it up. So if those things aren't actually functioning to reinforce behavior, then even that is, is being kind of a wasted opportunity for learning. So the learning is really impacted. So jumpstart the journey's main focus is to start to build value in watching people. Um, you know, there's a long history of ABA in terms of that, like eye contact and forcing autistic people to look at people when it's uncomfortable. And this kind of approaches it from a completely different angle, which is don't tell kids to look. That means that they're only going to be looking when they're instructed to do so, which is not how natural learning happens, right? Natural learning is going to require that they're socially motivated to engage with people. And so then they look up and they spend more time there. And then we, we know that the social consequences that are being delivered in their environment are going to strengthen the behavior because we've done the work to make them reinforcing. So that's like, that's really where the main goal is get kids more available for learning so that yes, when they do, when they are able to begin their treatment, like we've laid this beautiful foundation for amazing progress to happen. I mean, you're talking about the children being prepared, but I, it sounds as if, as if you're creating a community around the children that are more prepared to be a part of that that environment and that nurturing community 
on, on the go forward and to Absolutely. help to teach others how to be a part of that. And right. um, I mean, whether you're talking about, and you mentioned the observation, the, the social engagement, the creating those motivating factors and all those things that are so important, are you seeing that these potentially become parents that are more engaged through the treatment process because now they feel like they have, you know, the skills, a role, and a way to be able to be a part of the treatment? I think it is so empowering to, you know, I think most parents who just sort of start an ABA program feel like bystanders to the program because they don't have the foundational knowledge. You know, parent training is always involved in an ABA program, but it's sort of progressive and it happens over time. Like the ABA program is like already going by the time the parents getting their foundation understanding of what reinforcement is. So they, they, they can't be actively involved in the team and selecting goals for their kids and being able to be a part of the, the program because they just don't have that education or that understanding yet. And so to give parents empowerment of like, no, you are the most important person on your child's treatment team. You're the one that's there with them. You can't possibly advocate for the best type of treatment unless you have an understanding of what to expect and to watch the practitioners doing stuff that you're already familiar with. So yeah, you're right. I haven't really thought about it in terms of that. My goal has been so hyper-focused on helping parents help their kids, but but yeah, helping parents also just become more more engaged with the process to understand how important they are in this role. Now, Carrie, I, I've done a little bit of kind of looking around on, on your website just because I was like, oh, you know what, I'm super interested in what you're doing because uh, I mean, to put the lay of the land out there is that there is a a crisis out there. There's not enough care. There's so many people that are that are seeking access to some form of treatment, and there's not enough providers. So you have people waiting these crucial time periods, and sometimes that wait is indefinite, um, and there's nothing filling the gap. And and you're doing that right now. You're filling a role that needs to be there to be able to start empowering families. Um, one of the things that I that I saw on your website is that you also are kind of working a little bit with the provider set um, and hopefully teaching them through CEUs and things like that. Yes. Because yes. you can't do it all by yourself, I'm guessing. Right, no, <laughs> right, right. Is this, is this a, a goal of yours um, to be able to kind of help to, I guess, influence the field to be able to, I guess, shift the dynamic away from just focusing on the direct delivery and put a little bit of priority into, we have a lot of families that need something while they're waiting. Let's right. put some resources there and everybody do their part for those families. What would you be saying to the practitioner community to be able to fill that gap and, and what they need to be doing to be able to kind of step up and take on some of that responsibility. Yeah, I, you know, there's a big debate in our field about caregiver-led intervention. Um, there's a lot of research in parent-led intervention, and I, I find it sort of split down the middle between behavior analysts that think that it waters down the quality of what we do. It, it um, you know, we have master's degrees and certifications and all this experience. And so to say that we could be able to teach parents things that they could be doing takes away from what we do. And I just, 
I fundamentally disagree with that. There's always going to be a place for a behavior analyst led program with, you know, trained therapists that are in there. But when I look at how many families are standing by and waiting for this because the wait lists are too long or there's not a practitioner in your rural area where you live, I think that giving parents something is better than nothing. And so I feel very strongly about educating parents and giving them resources to empower them to begin the process. And I would stand by that 100% over, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it making it seem like being a behavior analyst isn't that big of a deal because if parents can learn to do it. You know, I think everybody is capable of learning something and I think something is better than nothing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know where agencies fall into this line and how, how they could be helping to support you know, giving, if you, we are just in such a technician, an RBT shortage. Um, the agency I was at, it's just constant turnover. You'll hire 10 people and you'll lose five. I mean, it is, it, it, and, and that also is, you know, that's detrimental to the treatment program. It's detrimental to the relationships this child is building with, with technicians. Um, one of the other critiques of parent led is that parents have enough on their plate and that this is just an added stress. And again, I say, let those parents make that decision for themselves. Give them the information and allow them to make the decision of whether or not it's too stressful. I'm a parent. If my child needed something, I would, I would make sure that I did that because my job and my, my mission in life is to give my child the best chance at being the best possible version of themselves. And if I had to make some sacrifices to do that, I would. I don't, I'm not saying every parent needs to make that choice, but I think that they should be allowed to make that choice. We shouldn't be making that choice for them. I think I empathize with that point of view is that, and, and that perspective is that, A, I think that they're, they're two different services. They're both the same science. They're two different services. Is that yeah. when you're looking at it from the perspective of that family who's not receiving care because nobody is seeing it as a part of the model of care that that fits in within what they can deliver or within their model that they have been able to set up within the structure that that right. is their paradigm right well i still want something to be able to make my household function i still need skills to be able to empower myself and my child to have a dynamic that creates a relationship that we can be able to grow with. Nothing leaves me with status quo. Something gives me a chance to be able to move forward, and it might be a slower path forward, Absolutely. but it gives me a chance to move forward. And I think that that's where the coaching, the coaching isn't going to be, I'm going to have 30 goals, and it's it's not that sort of thing. It's I'm going to be yeah. taking on these these core pivotal skills. And I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to tackle two, three things. But I'm right. going to work on them hard. I'm going right. to embed them into my life. Right. And I'm, and I'm going to get coaching on this on a regular basis. I think there is clearly a role for that. And I think it's something that um, I think it's something that we need to be talking about more openly um, and not creating these barriers and maybe looking more into the research. And I guess I'll go back. I mean, you've been in the field. Um, I 2002 is, is when you were at Pepperdine. And 
give me the history because I don't know that every family had 40 hours a week of care back in 2002. Insurance reform wasn't there. So there were a lot of families getting a lot of consultative care. Were these families able to make some behavior changes in their lives? I mean, what was the feeling at that point as far as the gestalt? Yeah, I I think... um... The, no 40-hour programs. I didn't see any 40-hour programs in 2002. Um, and, you know, maybe 10 hours a week. And the parent in, like, we, uh, the model has changed so much because of the financial restrictions. You know, when I first began, um, our teams would meet every other week with the family. We would have team meetings and we would discuss the child's progress. We would look at the data. Um, the behavior analyst who was managing the program would be sort of in a collaborative way, we'd all be working together. So the, the parents were a super important part of the team and it was structured in that way. And then as, you know, as we got more and more restrictions, now that insurance funds programs, it's wonderful, but they don't fund a team meeting. There is no funding for that. So agencies would have to pay for that. You know, it, it becomes almost untenable to be able to provide the quality of treatment that we that we know exists that would be like the gold standard of treatment based on the limitations that we have now again it's much better than nothing but but parents i don't it, it every parent sort of has their own ability to decide how involved they are in the program because there isn't this just like built-in collaboration um and so if i'm only getting 10 hours a week I know that I need to be the one carrying over all these strategies and the other waking hours that my child has in order to be as successful as possible. Uh, we can't just do therapy 10 hours a week and then do the opposite of that during the other hours that our child is there and expect that there's going to be progress made. Um, so yeah, the, it, it's definitely shifted. And I think that sometimes it's become, you know, and there's a, this is a different thing, but Whoever's running agencies, you know, we have a lot of private equity now funding big, big agencies, and you don't necessarily have behavior analysts that are at the helm of the organization. And that creates kind of a conflict also because it's a business model um, and businesses are meant to, you know, make a lot of money or at least that's the goal. And from the behavior analyst perspective, the goal was always to help as much as possible. And so sometimes I can, I feel like there's a bit of a conflict there in creating the most advantageous environment for support, which includes that parent input and buy-in. Yeah, I think I think regardless of kind of where you're looking at it, is that in order to be able to give the family what they need, which is that access to, I mean, whatever is medically appropriate and whatever is ecologically appropriate for that child, is that you need to have the staffing to be able to do it. You need to have the resources to be able to do it. And for some children, that's 25 to 30 hours a week. For others, maybe it's far less than that. Right. But that staff isn't always available or right. there's a delay to be able to getting there. And you right. need to be able to have something to fill those gaps to be able to still prepare the family to be able to get there. And I think that's what Jumpstart really does provide. So when you're going through a the Jumpstart program with families, is it a curriculum based? Is it is it tailored to the family? I mean, how do you kind of look at it, is it as far as the individualization goes? So it's it's I want to look at it as a, like an education, right? It is there is a, a an outline that is consistent across families. 
with every single piece of that outline that is individually tailored to that family based on that child. Um, everything is about taking everyday interactions with kids. So parents play with their children every day. They sit down and do meals every day. They do bath time. They, you know, they have their things that they do every single day. And the education piece of Jumpstart the Journey is just about teaching parents different ways to do those everyday things in order to optimize learning. And so it's all about individualizing it through, you know, I may give an example of how I would create a play chain for a child in order to build up their motivation and become an integral part of the interaction and make it reinforcing because of me. Um, but now I want to give this framework to a parent and say, now you need to take this and do it with your child's favorite things because your child is your child and you're the one that knows, knows him or her the best. So we're going to, you're going to create some of these play chains using your child's favorite toys, join them where they are, meet them on the floor, playing trains and looking at wheels. If that's where your child is, that's where you're going to begin this process and start to bring your child a bit more out of there and into your world to make socialization more reinforcing. So, so it's really about teaching parents, you know, there is like a, a basic introduction of just some like fundamental behavioral pieces, how reinforcement works and how we need to strengthen mm -hmm. and build behavior, how to condition reinforcers that are social in nature so that kids are more sensitive to the social consequences in their world. And then it's like, take it and make it individualized to your child. There is also a secondary, so that there's a social connection module where we talk all about that piece. And then there's a communication module as well. Because if I'm looking at the young years, you know, like right, right when our parent is concerned about development all the way to they're enrolled in treatment, this is most likely going to be a stage where language and communication is also pretty weak or requiring a little bit of support. And so I'm helping parents learn how to um, promote vocal language. You know, not every child is going to be a vocal communicator. Having some form of meaningful communication is incredibly vital to a child's success in whatever form that is. But if we're starting with very young kids, I'm always going to start by trying to get vocal language because our world predominantly communicates with vocal language. And so if we want our child to be able to communicate with the largest number of people, then that's where we begin. So there's a whole communication piece of teaching parents how to how to join in with their children making noises and how to start working on some basic sound imitation and capturing when our child is really motivated for something and how to build language into that. So, and, and like I said, like doing these two pieces kind of sets the learning stage for whatever that next step in their journey is going to be. Yeah, I mean, and just being a part of your child's world is it's so powerful in itself. But I mean, the way you're describing this and, the, and I guess the continuum of where it goes once and I'll put in the framework of like a, a more of like a intensive behavior intervention kind of that framework when then when and if that starts is yes. that you have a family ready for generalizing all skills right. naturalizing all skills and being a part of kind of the creativity process of making it feel like all these skills have a role in our life as right. they're coming in from the intervention team is how do I make it part of our everyday life 
and how can I be a part of, of kind of creating some of the the normalization to what's happening here? So right, I right. love I love the the thought process through it and just the continuity of it. So you're you're only a few years into the journey of this business. Um, I, I'm I mean, less than a year. <laughs> okay, less than yeah. a year into it. Yeah. I mean the. Yeah concept sounds absolutely amazing. So what, what are the aspirations? Where are you hoping to be able to take this? Okay, so I, Jumpstart the Journey is the course. Autism Jumpstart is sort of my global, you know, I feel like parent education is just so important. And I've worked with children as young as 17 months and as old adults, as old as 23 and 24 years old. So, um, you know, Jumpstart the Journey is geared toward these really, really young kids, kind of the you know, the, the one to three range, one to four range. Um, so, and, and where I'd like to see that grow is just to be able to make it out to people who don't have our resources. You know, I'm working with a family in England, in the UK. Um, they just don't have the resources there. I have a mom in Pakistan that I've been working with and uh, they're, they're, they're just begging for support and they don't have the infrastructure and the resources there to provide an intensive ABA program. And so, you know, on one hand, I want to make parents aware of what they should be looking for, because I think that's the other thing that's so critically missing is just understanding what typical development is and, and noticing when it when your child is not necessarily on track for that. Because, you know, parents who may be their first child and they don't really know what to expect and they don't really, you know, they don't notice that things aren't necessarily on track. Um, and so making this aware kind of awareness campaign of parents, what they should be looking for in the first year of life. We have so many baby sibling research studies that are showing babies less than a year old that are demonstrating obvious symptoms of autism. And so they're there. They just can't be diagnosed formally until at least 18 months, which I know, you know, is very young and probably in the range on the averages of when people are actually receiving a diagnosis. Um, we also know that areas that are impoverished, um, you know, parents who are maybe not native English speakers, um, lower income households tend to have kids that get diagnoses later and get resources much later. And my goal is, you know, I want every child to have the same opportunity, regardless of how much money their parents make or how, you know, how what an affluent place they live. Um, one of the families that I worked with reached out to an agency and you know, we're told that there was an eight month wait list. So, so they couldn't start yet, but that they offered this amazing one week introduction that was $25,000 and it wasn't covered by insurance. And I, it just broke my heart because I feel like, you know, no child deserves to be left behind because their parents didn't make enough money to get them the resources. Um, you know, parents that may not maybe listed on hold with the insurance companies or, or take a day off of work to attend, you know, multiple meetings. I just, I want to be able to see that we are providing educational resources to parents to, so that every child has equal footing and, 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 and has the same opportunities as every other child. Um, so that's where I would like to see Jumpstart the Journey go is to be able to provide kind of equity in delivery of this education to parents, regardless of where they live or how much money that they make. Well, I think I think you got footing and I think you're definitely well on your way there is that um, just even looking at your website is that just you've, you've got some wonderful videos there is that the courses are being offered is that you have some uh, in the blogs and the CEUs. 
what other resources, and I mean, please do give the website as well, but what other resources do you recommend for families and even practitioners out there to be able to reference so that they can start to be able to understand the same sort of passions that you have? Um, well, resources for me are like, I, I post on social media almost every day. I try to do some sort of video related to autism or awareness or early intervention or, you know, all of the things that impact kids, uh, families that have children that are on the spectrum. Um, I, I read a lot of journal articles. I know that those aren't necessarily very user friendly for parents. And that's really where I have seen my, like, I like the science and I think that the science is really important for parents, but it needs to be done in a way that makes sense to them. Not everybody comes with the same background of educational history. Um, and so, you know, I recently did a, a video that is a CEU for practitioners, but it's geared toward parents and it sort of, sort of breaks down uh, a three hour podcast that I had watched about a neuroscientists out of Stanford and the research that they're doing. And, you know, that type of information just isn't digestible to every parent. So I tried to take that, synthesize it and make it user friendly. Because like I said, like my goal is parent education. I want parents to be informed and empowered. And I think that the way to do that is to consume the science myself and try to get it out there um, in a way that is understandable and meaningful and applicable to the way they can take it right into their home with their child. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, there are other like people that are on social media that are doing the same thing. I think that um, finding scientists that can speak to parents is important and, and it's meaningful and I, and I hope that it's helpful. Well, Carrie, I appreciate you taking your time to talk with us today, and hopefully we can share your vision with others and, and keep this moving down the track so that others are starting to talk about it and also implement it out in the field a little bit more. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting ABS Kids. Dot com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.